0: Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actor, director, and writer Edward Norton. For the past 25 years, Edward Norton has established himself as one of the greatest actors of his generation. His legacy includes roles in films like Primal Fear, American History X, Fight Club, and Birdman, And he's the type of artist who constantly seeks challenge. Take, for example, his new film, Motherless Brooklyn, which he wrote, directed, and stars in. The political thriller meets classic noir is an incredible achievement, and one that took 20 years to bring to fruition. For Edward, being an artist is more compulsion than mere desire. As he says, most of us are one or two degrees away from obsession tipping over into a true condition and affliction. That's how I feel about acting and writing. Well, luckily, Edward has a creative place to put that obsession, and he cites his artistic heroes, like Bob Dylan and David Bowie, for giving him a path to follow when he was searching for self-identity as a teenager. The resounding message was, the freaks are who you want to hang out with. So, Edward sought to find his own tribe of like-minded creative people after graduation. And he has felt like a part of an artistic community ever since. That community nurtured him and helped him land his first big role in Primal Fear. And now, that same community has helped him fund and cast Motherless Brooklyn. As he says, if I've got any collateral via what I've done, why wouldn't I try to do something big? Edward joins off-camera to talk about identifying with his underdog character in Motherless Brooklyn, learning to put his problems in perspective after his mother passed away, and why he has a hard time trusting anyone who actually enjoyed high school. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hey, Ed.
1: Hey, Sam. Thanks for doing this. Of course. It's fun.
0: You know, I've known you a long time now. Uh, We were just talking before we started filming that uh, we worked together in 2000, which is now 19 years ago. And I read that you just turned 50. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for bringing that <laughs> up. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> well, listen, once, once we become 50, right. we, we want to out others.
1: Yeah, exactly. You, misery loves company. Yes, <laughs> is that, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah.
0: You yeah. know, I remember my father turning 50, and my mom threw him a surprise birthday party. And because it was sort of his whole life around him, I remember thinking, he's so old. Yeah. Like, I really had a sense as a kid that 50 is... The back end. And now I don't feel anything like that. I still feel very young.
1: I think some some of it's perspective, and it also, of course, throws you. I I have these moments all the time now where I am kind of thrown into this almost poignant realization of who my parents actually were at a phase that I thought of them as older. You know what I mean? As I go through those stages, I'm like, God, they were such young people. I think there's that thing where you. You get closer to your parents again because you're going through those phases of life and you 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 realize like who they were right, were, you know what I mean, but what's funny is i I do remember when we when we did the first shoot we did um, which was fun I think you know we kind of we had a lot of fun knocking around on the universal back yeah back, was yeah, it yeah,
0: yeah, we sort of had the whole back yeah yeah ourselves, we were I remember weirdly. just running
1: around and kind of playing and shooting kind of off the cuff, which was really fun and um but that was. Not long after, it was really funny. Like, that was, I think I just turned 30. Yeah,
0: yeah. Right around then.
1: And what's weird is I remember going, just before we did that, I, I had gone to Bruce Springsteen's 50th birthday party. Really? Which was amazing. Probably
0: different than my dad's Absolutely, birthday.
1: but at the time I remember also feeling, wow, it's hard for me to process that Bruce Springsteen is 50. Like, the eternal rebel youth on yeah guy on the cover that thing he's 50 and how does that feel for him and he's a rocker and i remember thinking my god he's he's so lit up like he's so so defying my notion of hitting that age and everything and then like a couple weeks ago was his 70th <laughs> and i was thinking oh my god i'm 50 he's 70 and i was talking to him about it i said do you relate can you relate to this because i can't relate to the number the i can't either yeah i can't i I hope maybe we're, we are actually <laughs> in some ways more youthful than our parents or may, maybe we actually, things I don't know, but my grandparents at 30 seemed like adult people to me. Like, and, I, and no, no one I knew seemed like an adult at 30. Yeah, no. I, I think there's like, I do think there's been this attenuation of the age at which you're expected to sort of, in some ways, act mature.
0: You know, to that point, I think that I mean we should say that, that the reason you've come here other than because I know you miss me greatly, <laughs> is because you've you've made this incredible film called Motherless Brooklyn, which you've written, directed, and star in. And to turn fifty and to have an achievement of, of that magnitude, but also to take on that mountain of of work at at this place. Like that to me is what keeps us young is not ever settling into the things we know how to do and repeating them, but to keep finding things that that do challenge us and, and, and do poke at our insecurities or our self doubt yeah so how long have you actively been trying to get this to the point where it is now where it 's finished
1: I mean, it would be inaccurate to say i 've worked on it for twenty years because i I read it in I read it actually before it came out um, i knew, I, had, I knew people who knew Jonathan Leith and we had some mutual friends in New York in the late' 90s. He was an up-and-coming writer in Brooklyn. I, I had read one thing of his that I liked, and someone said to me, you know, Jonathan's written this novel about a, a detective with Tourette's syndrome and obsessive-compulsive disorder. It's right up your alley, and I remember, like, <laughs> the greedy actor in me went, that sounds, that sounds like, you right. know, that sounds like a, a bit of fun or maybe my bag, you know? And I, I chased it down, and I got it in galleys, and the initial hook for me 100%, not even not even anything else, it was just that the, he, he created this character um, who's this wonderful hot mess of of paradoxes. He's he's smart, um, he's actually a tough sort of street-hardened Brooklyn orphan, and he's got this incredible capacity in his mind to hold on to details and remember things, but that's a that's the outgrowth of this condition that he's got right that's incredibly destabilizing and and uh tough for him to navigate which is he he's got physical tics and twitches vocal the vocal twitches um uh, uh, can't stop playing with words in his head shouts inappropriate things is as they call him in the book a freak show yeah and but th- what the book does is it it puts you inside his head and then you hear his inner monologue and yeah. you feel the intimacy with him that creates an empathy and in a weird way, like all great underdog characters I think not even just ones with disabilities but all underdog characters we see ourselves in them they give us a heightened struggle because we don't have autism or Tourette syndrome or you know or we don't have severe cerebral palsy like the character in my left foot right but within their heightened struggle we still see loneliness being misunderstood being underestimated and we see ourselves in that
0: well i related to that because uh i think what what he does externally we all sort of do internally we all get stuck in these little loops in our brains sometimes where we don't notice it but we're, our brain is sort of gone rogue and totally
1: like how, how many people say like oh that that Pop song that is I stuck can't in my head. cotton candy yeah. stuck in my head I can't get it out why and think of all the ways that we're compulsive I mean we, you know for many people you're you're one or two degrees away from it tipping over into a true condition that's a an malady. affliction yeah. on, on a way. that's that's how I feel about acting and writing and everything is I I've, I feel blessed that I have a place to put my compulsion to imitate other people's voices. Because, like the guy with schizophrenia walking down the street who is talking in tongues, like I sometimes look at that and go, "There, but for the grace of God, go I." Because I, I, I hear voices in my head, like I, I, I hear language and accents, and I want to play with them. Like I always have wanted to, and I have a, I have it an in balance, and I have a place to put it, you know. But, but I think. Um, but the idea of being, of suffering from compulsion is something I, you know, I, I think many people can relate to, but that I definitely relate to. So, he, so he's a fascinating character, yeah. right, full stop. The thing that um, was interesting is that Jonathan, I said to Jonathan, he wrote, the, the novel has a certain surrealist um, meta thing where the guys who worked for the detective, Mina, who Bruce Willis plays, yeah. including Lionel, who's this kind of secret weapon down in this little group of guys who are all orphans together. They, they in the book, they feel like people from the 50s. And I said to Jonathan, like, I kind of think we should just put it in the 50s. Because
0: it was set in the 90s It in was the set book. in the 90s. Yeah, right.
1: And I thought Lionel could be a really, Lionel could be that vehicle for going on a drift through the complexity of what was going on and the darkness because... If there was ever a moment when there was a huge disconnect between what we were saying about ourselves in the sort of Leave it to Beaver era of the 50s and what was really going on, the shadow narrative under the American sort of assertions, right there was some dark, dark shit going on. Yeah, 40s and 50s New York. Yeah, in New York in particular, you had the entire city and state was run by a Darth Vader, a, a, a person who was never elected, was intensely antagonistic to democratic ideals, who was a racist, a full stop, unapologetic racist, and who had the power, had amassed such power that he engineered his racism into the infrastructure of the city in ways that we still are grappling with. And it flies in the face of everything that we say about how we got to where we are. And I just thought, I thought, especially post-2016, it, it seemed to me that, like, looking at looking at this tendency in American life, which has been there all along, it's not just right now. Was cool. Was an was an interesting thing to do.
0: Yeah, you know, you were talking about the idea that obsessiveness is, in a way, sort of like. You have to be an obsessive to be a creative. Yeah. But creatives also are lucky enough that their obsessiveness can turn into something positive. Yeah. And when I had Don Cheadle on here and he was talking about directing and starring in the Miles Davis movie he made, his wife said, never again will I allow you to do anything like that. (laughs) And I was so curious about your obsessiveness and the incredible workload you took on doing this. And And if it challenged your... Your nature to be obsessive in a way that it it almost broke you.
1: Um, No, those those are fair, good questions. I, uh, I researched and wrote, and got blocked, put it away, came back to it, and got through. There was this process of kind of the lonely work, but I did it on my own pace, and it wasn't. At times, it was frustrating, but not not painful. You know what I mean? And I did it while doing other things. But when it came to making it, I, I went through a period of about five years where I really struggled to get the resources together to make it. It's,
0: did you want to direct it or did you have to direct it?
1: No, at a certain point, someone I really trust said to me, you you, you should do this. You're, you're, the story is yours. It's, it, 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 I knew that even though I wanted to play the role and that the two would be challenging, I, I knew that me sitting over someone else's shoulder directing the story I wrote was sort of a recipe for, like, you know, like, like author, authorship tension. Right. And also talking about inspiration in people, everything, getting to a certain age, there comes a the point, I think, where you're not trying to really prove anything per se in the way you do. When, when you're young, you're trying to flex your muscles, I think, with your talent or your perception of your talent or whatever. There's, there's more, there's, there's ego, there's the desire to... I don't know to to I don't know, make them make a statement make a mark yeah. or whatever. I think if you're lucky enough to work along and get to do things at a high level and work with great people, it, it kind of gets to a point where you're like, well, why am I doing anything that I'm doing? Um, you know, if Alejandro Inarritu drops Birdman and says we're going to shoot this movie in one shot, you, you go, this is an easy yes because I'm going to get inside someone else's who I. Re- respect and revere as an artist I'm going to be part of their big swing right? right and that's really fun that's like when, I, as an actor where I want to be more and more which is really serving serving someone else's big swing and big vision and if they say blue give everything I've got into blue and then if they say I was wrong red give ev- give everything I've got into red you know what I mean serve like as an actor serve someone's thing yeah. but you get to a point where you sort of say well on the other hand like you know I it sounds highfalutin, but like you know if you i look at when I look at films like Citizen Kane or you know when Warren Beatty making Reds, there's these examples of people who kind of said, This is a thing I understand, and I'm going to do it, and it's audacious, and like Warren felt all the way out on the limb the whole time he was doing it, he had people constantly telling him that the whole idea was half baked and that it didn't work, and you you realize that like that at a certain point you go well why have i built if i've got any collateral via what i've done to try to do something why the fuck would i do anything else like why why wouldn't i try to to swing for like you know a story that i think i understand or try to say something you yeah. know what i mean and i think that when you see that people have done it and when you really probe those stories and realize they weren't easy. They did not feel like automatically they were going to be great. People went and did them, took big risks. You sort of go, well, you know, what's the worst that can happen? It won't work. You won't get to make it. That would suck, you know. Or you make it and it won't. It doesn't come out right. Like whatever, you know. It's not. You're not living in Syria, right? Like you're not a refugee. You know right. what I mean? It's like, and so those kind of risks, if you want to call them that, become an interesting zone of feeling like. Like every bit of you is being pulled on to try to wrangle a beast of a thing um, into shape or into being, and it's it's yeah, it's very switched on, a very switched on mode of of work. And I do think, um, as you get older and other things come into the life, like family or whatever, you yeah, it's it's a choice. that you're gonna say for this period I'm I'm gonna go deep on a thing but we can we can do it we can you know I I can balance it I can give myself to it fully without abandoning everything else in life Um,
0: leading up to principal photography what were the kind of 3am doubts that creeped in
1: the biggest thing was uh look I'm not I'm not complaining like it took a long time it took a lot of people being very bold in backing me to get together what we needed, and I need and this cast: Bruce Willis first, then Willem and Alec, and
0: yeah, Alec like Baldwin who, and I,
1: everyone in this film. I pulled, I called in like every chip I had or whatever, and everybody worked for scale basically. So, so I had a lot of people making this possible for me to do. You know, we we made the film for like twenty six million bucks, right? And, and it looks so, like a
0: hundred million dollar film. Yeah, right?
1: and I. I, I will throw down and say I think like there's a lot of films out this year, big period, long period films that you know that cost anywhere from 95 million to one that's about to come out that cost 200 and something million. You know what I mean? And if I could get Netflix to give me that, I'd do it too, maybe. But I kind of found like, look, this is this, we got to do this. We can do this. You don't need all that. We're gonna do it. It sounds a little crazy. It's harder. In some ways, and my anxieties heading into it were like, you know, I was like forty six days is not enough to make this film. It's just not with all of our absolutely like granular planning planning like i nothing I've ever been on was planned. You know what i mean we're still- we still it's going be real it's going to be a beast like we're gonna." New York City—it's gonna—it's gonna catch up with us, you know, in some way. And it's like, how, how are we gonna get sideswiped? It was more like we don't have a lot of margin for error. Right. Something's gonna sideswipe us. What is it gonna be? You know, and, and that
0: idea that like you can certainly find common logic that would say, don't do this.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: I, I mean, that's stressful. It, that it, can it, be. It
1: it, it it had yeah, it had its moments. It, it definitely had its moments. Um, but I used to, you know. The third film I made was *The People vs. Larry Flint*, uh, yeah, which I did with right. Milos Forman.
0: You, you played the lawyer of of oh, Larry. Flint. Of Larry Flint,
1: yeah, and 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 Milos Forman, who directed that film, was to me one of the like the living deities of film. You know, he one flew over the cuckoo's nest yeah. and Amadeus and so many, Ragtime and Hair and so many other other really amazing films. But um, But he, you know, he came up, his parents were both killed by the Gestapo, lived through World War II in the Czech Republic, lives under the Soviet uh, state in Czechoslovakia, comes up through all that and somehow makes his way out, you know, through the Russian crackdown in 68 and ends up with films at the New York Film Festival that sort of get him a, a few gigs. And Michael Douglas sees his Czech films and says that'd be a great guy to do this anti establishment book, The One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And lo and behold, he somehow ends up making that film, right? And the thing is, I used to talk to Milos, and when you realize like, what he had been through, like, you know, he would be on us. We were on the set of Larry Flint, and I the studio wanted to shut him down one day over something to do with one of the court scenes. And it was, it was like mildly stressful or whatever. And, and I... I remember seeing him like kind of do one of those stressful phone calls and say well you know I am in Oxford Mississippi you are in Los Angeles we don't disagree if you can if you can stop me from shooting uh, you may stop me from shooting otherwise I w- you know I will continue and he kind of hangs up and he was like he was so totally unfazed and I kind of was like and he w- and he goes you know because these are how do you say it? New York uptown problems you know what I mean and he was like I was like I was like, that's. I need to keep that perspective. Like this, this, the stress. These are stresses of the sort that you dream of having right. someday, and that everyone you admire, whoever made anything you liked, this was a component part of it. So, like, don't romance the only the easy part of it. You know, this is this is the deal. This is the gig.
0: And well, that's kinda, the difference between fifty and thirty. Yeah, right. You kind of get into it. You can have an appreciation of that.
1: Yeah, maybe, maybe. I think at 30 you kind of feel too immortal in a way. Like, um but but yeah, I think I think I do think getting older helps you be less reactive, right? And I think one of the things probably if I had made this movie when I was 30 is when the bad moments come, sometimes they wind you up into a state where suddenly you've got like you're antagonizing the situation because you're you don't, know how to, you, you don't know how to
0: you don't know how to you don't know you don't know fight. how to
1: end run the situation by not getting wound up about it by doing like milosh did right like keeping your equanimity and moving on yeah. kind of relentlessly and quietly you know not getting derailed or or wound up into a place where you might say something stupid and then the whole thing collapses instead of like you, you know instead of massaging it across the line, you know what I mean? Yeah.
0: Um, how, how did you approach the problem of directing yourself, and not only directing yourself, but being in a scene where it's, you know, a uh, dialogue scene, two shot, or, or a couple overs, and like you said, you have to show up for your director and yeah. go all in as an actor, but you've also got to watch the other actor's performance. And
1: Yeah, the... the what the, was your
0: process on that? I had
1: people I trusted to do my preparatory work with so that I felt reasonably you know, in the zone of what I knew I wanted to play in. And as a director, I tried to make sure that I knew in advance what I was going to be delegating. But I knew there would be the, the distraction of just not being able to remain as an actor completely in the intuitive place. You have to duck out as a director and be in that analytical headspace. I knew I could do it, but my, my concern was the deterioration of the thing that actors do for each other. I was worried about the impact on the other actors right. primarily. And my, my hedge on that really was more just to get actors who I knew were kind of like theater-experienced, tradecraft pros. And by theater-experienced, I really mean people who, as part of their training and professional life, have come with the totality of their performance ready. Right. Ready to play and ready to do things. But honestly, just text ready, like off book, no fucking around with like, I might not know all the lines yet. And so you're going to cut around that. And I had to have people who were ready to rock and who I knew didn't need a lot from me to get going and might only need from me a word, you know, a verb Literally, to make an, a significant adjustment, and it's just like if you have those kinds of people around you you're you're um you're insulated as a director against the distraction that you're causing.
0: I, I would think the hardest thing would be to to move on from a scene <laughs> after being in a scene and being like Oh, now I got to put the different yeah. hat on and go look at the monitor. And can I really tell everyone we're going to strike this set and move on? Do I have it? Yeah. You yes. Know?
1: Yes. There, there are, there are definitely. And to judge those your moments. own
0: performance. Yeah. From an actor standpoint, but then from a director's standpoint, and then from an editor standpoint, like.
1: Well, you learn you you also learn things over time. You know, like like um, I'm really lucky. I've I've made films with Spike Lee and David Fincher and Wes Anderson and Alejandro Inarritu and. These are not um, these are not improvisational protean talents. They they're, they're protean, passionate, but these are these are people who who come, they come they have game. They come they come ready. You know what I mean. These are not people who don't. Spike Lee is also someone who has acted in his films. You know. And for all of Spike's sort of iconoclastic thing, it can give you the wrong impression. Like, like Spike shot The 25th Hour in 27 days. And he did it, we rehearsed for six weeks for nine hours a day. And, and every day was shot listed with no coverage, with exactly, it was a pre-cut in his head. And when Spike has two that work, he's up and out of his chair, he's pulling up tape, he's moving monitors. He's a baller. I mean, he is... He and and you look at that and you go, this is how those things I love got done. What you know what you, I what, mean? Yeah.
0: What I hear you saying is that the most talented people also happen to be the ones who will outwork everybody.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I think that um, um, uh, you, you 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 poach methodologically from from people who you see getting it done in that kind of a way, and it's again the. Would I? I I'm not sure. I. I'm ironically the film I made when I was 30 I had I had more money and more time to do my rabbi priest uh, <laughs> no, romantic, the romantic comedy, comedy yeah. um, you know and 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 I needed every bit of it um, then I don't then I could not have made this film right. with the resources and the time
0: Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Helix Sleep. You know, I'm sitting here in the off-camera studios and I'm going to tell you about Helix Sleep. And I want you to know that I woke up this morning on a Helix Sleep mattress. And I've done that for the last six months ever since my Helix Sleep mattress showed up. And that was after I took my two-minute Helix Sleep quiz. And I can tell you quite honestly, I love my mattress. I've had a great experience with this company and I can't recommend them highly enough. So here's how it works. Helix Sleep is a mattress company. They deliver straight to your door. They have great guarantees. I'm going to tell you all about that. But they're unique in the sense that they really want to figure out and pair the right mattress for you. To that end, they've created the Helix Sleep two-minute quiz. And you take this quiz, and it matches your body type and sleep preferences, and then they can send you the perfect mattress. And as a matter of fact, I took the quiz assuming that I would be an extra firm mattress, and by the time I finished, I'd gotten a mattress that wasn't their firmest, and I love it so much more and I sleep so much better, and I really didn't know that about myself. I'm a side sleeper, and I'm a hot sleeper, and they just sent me the perfect mattress. There's no more confusion and no more compromising on an average mattress. They were even awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2019 by GQ and Wired Magazine. And for couples, Helix can even split the mattress down the middle, providing individual support needs and feel preferences for each side. And they have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. So really, it's the best way to buy a mattress with the most risk-free program, and I think you'll really enjoy the experience. And for our listeners, they're offering a special deal. If you go to helixsleep.com offcamera, take their two-minute sleep quiz, they'll match you to a customized mattress that'll give you the best sleep of your life and they're offering up to $125 off all mattress orders. So you can get up to $125 off if you go to helixsleep.com slash offcamera. One more time, that's helixsleep.com slash offcamera for up to $125 off your mattress order. Now, if you do this, you get your mattress and you love it, send me an email, tell me about it, tell me about your experience because I love it and I'm glad they sponsored the show. Speaking of the show, let's get back to it. You know, when you were talking about Spike Lee and, and how prepared he was and how the most talented people are the most prepared, it, it made me think, I've always thought of you as somebody who's incredibly thoughtful, intelligent, does the hard work, puts their head down. And I've always admired that. And I was listening to you on Tim Ferriss's podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah, he's awesome. And he
0: asked you a question that is a great entree into your upbringing that I wanted to. I wanted to highlight. He asked you if you could put a billboard up anywhere, and what would it say? And you said, well, I, I'd put it up somewhere where my old high school cronies could see it and say, how you like me now. <laughs> and and it was the first... Not it the was, most
1: involved answer, but... But it was uh, the...
0: You know, it's funny, because it was, it was obviously comical, but I like finding little hidden truths in jokes like that. And because I see you as, as someone who's had it all together from a very young age, and and worked very hard, and very talented, uh, and it just it just made me wonder about you before you were formed or knew what you want to do, and and what your particular struggle was in high school because clearly <laughs> it wasn't all smooth sailing and you being yeah. ahead of the curve. And mm, I don't
1: I don't I I don't generally uh, trust people who liked high school. <laughs> I think like like I, I wonder if anyone whose work I like
0: Light-time. was anything.
1: <laughs> other than miserable in high school. like It's sort of like one of those baseline metrics you can probably like... Yeah. Um, there's probably some exceptions, but um, um, anyone who was like chairman of the board in high school probably was, was not someone who... Um,
0: um, yeah, senior class president think, yeah, I- isn't that. doing much. Uh,
1: no, I mean... <laughs> I will say there was a funny... There was a kid in my high school... This is a digression. I will answer that question, but it's a funny digression. There was a kid in my high school who... I remember, you know, I was very into Springsteen and things that were, like, my lonely obsession. Like, people were into hair metal shit in the 80s and yeah, Central Maryland, sure. you know what I mean? But I remember this kid I knew who had been in, one of the few kids who was kind of into punk and things like that. And when Run DMC and the Beastie Boys dropped, when that era, the Def Jam thing started to drop, overnight... He came into school, this like skinny little white kid, and he was like transformed. And he was like the beacon that like pulled us all into being into some of that stuff, right? And, um, <laughs> and I, I remember, I think he even wanted to be called in school the move. He was like, <laughs> I want to I be referred to. I think he was like, I'm going to be the fourth Beastie. I need to get to New York immediately. You know, blah, blah,
0: blah.
1: And and when when birdman came out um, russell simmons um, who i russell simmons i got i got an email from russell simmons out of the blue and it just the subject was birdman and the only and the, the whole email was N- you hot <laughs> that's what that's what russell wrote me and i just started laughing i got started laughing and I started trying to find through the one kid I'm in touch with through high school. I wanted to like send to that kid, like I wanted to write and be like, "We made it." Like, like the, the, like Russell Simmons, like he like just said, "Like you're in." Right, and, and right. I just think the feeling of of being outside, the, the feeling of being outside whatever the cool kid club is, or the feeling that you're. Um, no one's telling you where the party is and you're like cruising the streets of your neighborhood in your parents ford escort like kind of hoping you catch a sense of the where the flow of cars is going so you can just sh- like show up and no one it, you know be like it's not like people who say like get the f- what are you, what are you doing here get out of here but more just like you're not you're not in the invite list you know what i mean yeah. i think i think it 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 just sort of it makes you go um it it makes like, for me, it's it's what made Springsteen really, like, have a turbocharged value. He was or, a
0: beacon. Yeah, video. or
1: or 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 David Bowie, wh- who you know like, was that kind of an artist going, the the freaks are who you want to hang with.
0: Did like, you feel the,
1: that? Yeah, literally. Like, I mean, forget like Ziggy Stardust and these kinds of things. He's like writing about like like. You know, kooks like that song,
0: kooks. Yeah, David Bowie. You
1: know, literally, it feels like he's singing to you, like, like hang hang out with us a while, like hang out over here, and then it's gonna be all right. Like we're we're all we're weird, but but actually, it's pretty fun over here. You know what I mean? And I think that I think that um, the the anybody anybody who ends up feeling uh, outside. The, the circle, the winner's circle, or the, whatever you want to call it, it, it sort of, uh, it's a it becomes a drive, you know? What's funny is I kind of think, even though I've lived in New York 30 years, and there's a strong, there's a strong, what I would call, um, tribe of people who built theater companies in New York stayed connected to that part of our lives came up with each other got into making films and stuff like that there's a retention of a sense of um there's a retention in that of a sense of community that I love like really love you know yeah, what I mean and yeah. and I remember thinking like this this was the dream this was this was you know it's like this is what we all wanted to to get to was we're still doing plays down the street from each other. We're, we're we're we have a there's a community of us that that is doing our gigs and still interconnected with each other. You know, like we haven't we haven't atomized completely into um, you know gated communities and you know individual careerism. It is crazy. I think even the thing that doing a big piece of work does do to you is like when you're doing it you're in i think you're in this very pure place right when it comes around to this where you're putting it out it's unbelievable how not even just like hollywood and the industry but just sort of the culture at large it re-engineers essentially that like high school homecoming kind of vibe around your work right you're 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 subjected to like all the harpies of of assessment and the desire for a thing to be received in the moment, in a certain way, by certain people, in a certain No matter how many times you've been through like the experience of making Fight Club together, knowing that it felt right, that it felt like a thing, having it in the public eye seem to flop completely, get booed at the Venice Film Festival. And essentially, to retain conviction through that, go, well, this sort of sucks. Like, we really thought we were on to a thing. And then to feel that direct conversation, end run, all of that noise, create a relationship with the people we intended it for in the first place. Let the people who feel indicted be indicted, throw daggers deep, like all this shit in the end, it did not matter. You know what I mean? It formed its own relationship and it becomes, in a way, the best of all experiences because you end up going, we didn't need any of that. Like, we didn't need any right. of it. We, we got where we wanted to go through a direct line conversation with the people and, you know, suck it, right? You know what I mean? Right. And But I'm saying, you can still go through that, have the evidence that that is artistically like, where you want to go? Like, that's, like, the way when you watch the way Bob Dylan moved through the world and you're like, oh, my God. Anytime someone said they liked something, he was like, I'm long gone, man. Right. I'm over here doing this other thing. And when you still come to this moment, you're like, it's, like, unbelievable. You're like, have I changed at all? Am I still, am I any stronger than that kid in high school? Like, what is the problem in my brain with the insecurity that starts to just ping pong over that moment at which you know someone that i didn't even know was a writer at x stupid thing yesterday now has you know messed with my head you know what i mean and to deny it is is just bs it, go, it that's what goes on you know and i don't know anybody who's that strong you know i mean i know people who insulate themselves maybe better than i do but at the end of the day the we're among, we 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 have this like primate Social affirmation thing, which is why Facebook and Instagram are gigantic things, because we're right. looking for that little limbic that dopamine little, hit yeah. of, of like, how am I doing in this little, you know, gang of monkeys around me? Right. Yeah,
0: funny, the pressure never stops. No,
1: and, and the, but it keeps going. the The thing to me is, hopefully, you get better at. Hopefully, you get better at letting it go by you know what i mean just letting it go by just going like in a way like not not making decisions based on any of that not looking to that for the ultimate like your own sense of how you feel about the thing itself.
0: It's the because double-edged it, sword of being of doing anything creative. Yeah. Is that the affirmation can spoil the joy or the weird yeah, primate nice primatology, like you say, it has to create a result.
1: And just full stop. Unless you're unless you've become, I don't, I don't. Unless you've tightened up in a really horrible way that I wouldn't want to happen. It's fun, it's fun. You know, like I, I you know, we. We play dress up and pretend to be other people like for a living it's ridiculous it's completely ridiculous That's like kids playing with airplane paper. You know what I mean it's like you're you're trying to do do some stuff and make the thing fly. But I think that the conundrum is like how you remain responsible and like attentive to um like a righteous level of obligation that you have to the people who have made that
0: possible. Hey folks, let's take another little break from the conversation to tell you about one of this week's sponsors, Acuity Scheduling, a Squarespace company. So what is Acuity? Well, meet the scheduling assistant that works 24-7 behind the scenes to fill your calendar. And it takes hours of work off your plate. From the moment clients book with you, Acuity is there to automatically send booking confirmations with your brand and messaging. Deliver text reminders, let clients reschedule on their own, and process payments so your day-to-day runs smoother even as business gets busier. All you need to do is show up at the right time. Now, let me just pop in here for a minute and tell you that we are living in the golden age for the small business person. And I gotta say, I'm a little bit envious because when I started my business way back when, and I was a struggling young photographer and director, there was nothing online, no apps, nothing to help you kind of organize your business. And when I look into Acuity and what they can do, it's an amazing thing. And I kind of feel like, I'm the old guy telling people, you know, how I used to walk to school in the snow with gravel in my lunchbox and everything, but it's true. When you're starting a business now, if you have Acuity scheduling, it's a game changer. You know, with Acuity, you never have to ask what time works for you again, because clients can quickly view your real-time availability and self-book their own appointments. They can even pay online. With the ability to manage multiple locations and employees, class bookings, private sessions, add-on sales, and even recurring subscriptions, Acuity can adapt to any business you can keep your clients prompt with text and email reminders and you can dramatically reduce appointment no-shows with deposits or full upfront payments acuity is also great for data accumulation and storage you can collect everything you need to know about a client as soon as they book by asking clients to fill out intake forms when scheduling that way you can keep all of their information neat and tidy in one place and you get notified anytime a new appointment is booked you can even tell acuity to automatically update the calendars you already use like Google, Outlook, iCloud, or Office 365. You can keep your entire life in sync with Acuity Scheduling. So save yourself from the day-to-day drudgery of having to keep up with your clients and your busy schedule by using Acuity Scheduling. And for listeners of this show, for a limited time you can get 45 days of Acuity Scheduling absolutely free with no credit card required by going to acuityscheduling.com slash camera. So that's 45 days absolutely free by going to acuityscheduling.com/camera. So there's no reason to wait. You should check it out and see what acuity can do for you. Now back to the show. I got the sense that you sort of went to New York after college and figured out your own path or your own methodology for how to how to achieve what you wanted to achieve and I read that you wrote letters to directors and 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 it's it's like I had the sense you gathered your own tribe of people and you, you, you proactively created your community.
1: I, I wish I could credit myself with sort of a, um, I keep talking about Dylan, but I, I always, like when you watch those old things of Dylan, he's in his early 20s and he's like, he's, he's got this density. He's got this like, I know who I am. I know what I'm doing. You want me to pick it apart. I ain't going to do it. Like I mean, you just kind of go like, "How does anybody? How does anybody how, know how do they
0: come fully formed? How do
1: they come fully formed? Yeah, and I wish I could say like yes, but no. I you you, I like think you cobble together a se- you cobble together your own sense of like uh, the way you want to approach things. Partly from, uh, I mean, I always say to younger when when I'm talking to actors or young filmmakers or anybody, I'm always like, just don't don't be a, an ignoramus like one, you have to know if you, you got to read and watch and listen widely. And when you find the stuff that speaks to you, you got to dig in and figure out how the hell that got done and what the real story is behind it. You, you, you've got to actually investigate the truth of what went on in these things because you can say, oh, this work, you know, moves me or inspires me. But if you're trying to do the work, then you've done like, you don't know what you need to know about that thing. So you know would you mean? do
0: that when you were in your early twenties? Hell yes! I
1: like I, you know I. I you remember the um. Remember like the little, remember the books like Scorsese on Scorsese yes. or yes. there was that series called Projections. Like I was obsessed with those. I I because to me, anything you could find that took apart, like what was the nitty gritty on how this? Oh, there was this like Ralph Rosenblum, the great film editor wrote this book called um, um, When the Shooting Stops, dot, 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 the cutting begins. You know what I mean? And he cut like Annie Hall, um, Mel Brooks movies, like m- many, many great ones, right? The chapter in that book about Annie Hall was like, like a revelation to me. Because it, 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 Annie Hall, you would look at Annie Hall and you go fully formed. Like this is a person at the peak of his powers doing anything he wants to do, cartoons turning to the camera, talking to a thing, telling a nonlinear story, doing this stuff and blah 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 yeah. And you're just like, oh my God, like will I ever have the, the developed musculature to just go, there it is. And then you, you read that book about the making of that film. and it's like it's like the yin to the yet. Yeah. It is nothing to do with what you thought. It was cobbled together in failure, reshooting, discovery, reshooting. And the thing he started off making, he abandoned completely and remade it over into an entirely different thing with an entirely different focus. And he was still shooting. And he shot the introduction at the beginning of the movie like a day before he locked the film. You know what I mean? It's like... And if you don't... If you you don't... If you don't make like understanding how things get done part of your early process, you can't figure out really... How to even begin to approach it? I mean, I remember finding out that that Robert Duvall, Gene Hackman, and Dustin Hoffman were roommates in a tiny apartment, and going, "What? Like, how did that come together? What were they doing? Where were they from? How the hell did that end up happening?" And you know, what were they all doing? Like, and when you find out, like, Dustin was at FAO Schwartz doing a French-Canadian accent in the hockey equipment section, you're just like, oh my God, thank God. Thank God, you know what I mean? Like, when he got the graduate, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's what he was doing like, like the week before he got that. You're just like, oh, that helps, that helps. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I,
0: I, I had Matt Damon on here and he said that there wouldn't have been a Goodwill Hunting if he had gotten Primal Fear. <laughs> yeah. Now ever since I heard that I always wanted to ask you if you were aware of what an opportunity it was and if if e- that reflected well, y-
1: yes only because n- nothing nothing with that much juice in it came around to the general mob of us all. Right. You know what I mean? And I didn't even have an agent
0: at that you time. You didn't have an agent. Mm-mm. So how did how did how did you even get the I had auditioned room?
1: for a casting director, a really great casting director named Deb Aquila, who was the New York indie film. She did all of Soderbergh's early stuff. and Because I had auditioned for her and her partner for some indie films in New York or something, and they had sort of tagged me as someone they liked. They would have me back. But I literally got Connie Britton, the yeah. a- actress. I had run into her on the street. She was about to bail on going to an audition, and I said to her, what you, come on, what? You, you should go, you should go. I, I kind of... Pushed her. She went. She, later, she goes, you know, I got that thing, but I don't even know if I want to do it because it's like 12 weekends in a row at this kid's parents' place on Long Island. I'm like, Connie, you've never made a movie. Like, let, like, do it. Like, what are you doing? What else are you doing? Right? She's like, you're right. You're right. Right. So she does it. And that was the Brothers McMullen. Right. She went out to L.A. after that and, and got an audition for the part Maura Tierney played in, in Primal Fear. She walked out of it. She called me from the Paramount lot and goes, you have to write Deb Aquila a note right now. They're casting this thing at Paramount that is, it's, she's like, this is you. Like, you've got to get this, you've got to get in on this part. She's like, I know you and you've got to get in on it. So I faxed Deb Aquila, you know, and said, I don't know if you remember me. I read for this and this and this. Jane, you know, your partner, blah, blah, blah if you're coming to New York, I would really like to read, and that, that's how I got in on it. But, you know, I mean, I, I'm not even joking. Like, when I talk about, like, actors and a certain kind of a tribe, like, Connie, uh, that, that, that is, I think, where those communities matter. Like, you know what I mean? Like, people...
0: Where I people mean, know you yeah, and they can yeah, say... Yeah, yeah, I mean, you
1: talk about, yeah. like, how did, how did Ringo come into the Beatles? You know what I mean? It's like, that's how that stuff happens. You're, you're, you're kind of scrapping it out... Amongst the people you know, the, I mean, the irony is like, a <laughs> Matt Matt had done Matt was already on my. Ra- I mean, Matt had done been good in stuff, but you know, what's really funny is Matt and I were both up for the Rainmaker, the the Grisham book that right. Coppola directed. Yeah. that was after I'd done Primal Fear. I think I'd done. Yeah, it was a- it was like after I. I got nominated for my, I'd done a couple things and I didn't know Matt, but I knew who he was and I think we, we were like, you know, in the short list on that. Right. And if I had gotten that, which Matt got, you know, I wouldn't have done American History X because at right around then I had read it and I had this, you know, I was like, I, I was kind of, I was feeling it, you know, I was kind of feeling that one. But my, my agent at the time who was this very, very famous older agent. He was Richard Gere's agent and great character of the old school. And I was like, you know, I kind of want to do this like little film at New Line about a skinhead and everything. And he's like, you know, Francis Coppola is inviting you to come up to Napa to talk to him. And he goes, and if you don't fly, get on that plane and go take that meeting, like you are, I am firing you as a client, you know, and I was like, oh shit, okay. Because I was like, you know, Coppola, yeah but grisham like it seemed really square and i was right. like i'd done larry Flynn, i was like another lawyer don't do that you know kind of thing blah blah but i'm like he's right he's right so i i i went and met francis and the funny thing is i i saw francis a few nights ago i hadn't seen him in a long time and we were talking i said do you remember that conversation we had in napa and everything and he was he remembered things i didn't remember but i said to him we talked a long time about it and I was probably really stupid in that he said, what do you think of it? And I said, well, I think it's pretty square. You know what I mean? And he goes, oh, it's it's, it's entirely square. And I, he said, well, you know, what's lighting you up right now? What do you want to do? And I started telling him about this thing. And he goes, you should do that. And I said, yeah, but I, I want to, I, I can do that later. Like, well, I don't, don't care. You know, I want to do, I do anything with you. Like, what am I, you know, I do anything right. with you. Like, I can do great on this. I can be, I can be great in this, you know. And he was like, no, you, you, you should do that. You should do that. Like, I mean, that you do one of those, and like, the, you blow apart the box, man. Nobody'll, you know. He was saying all these things, and I was like, oh god. And then Matt, you know, Matt got the part and everything, and I was like, oh fuck, well, you know, what am I? I'm, I'm an idiot. Like, I should, that was a movie star role, and well, I just like blew it. I blew it, and you know, and blah blah blah. And um, and uh, and then somewhere around time, I, you know, I. The, uh, when, when the Oscars were going on in Amer- and I was up in that for American History X or something and I saw him like across your mind like he won't even remember me and he kind of like comes over and he, look- he goes I told you <laughs> you know what I mean and, I, and, um, and you, you know you just never know
0: obviously your your life changed pretty dramatically after Primal Fear everybody remembers that performance and I was curious first off timing wise did your mom get a chance to See that whole thing take place because I know didn't she pass away around yeah, that time? Some somewhat.
1: I mean, um, the the I don't want to say the best part of it. The 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 doing it, getting it, and um, and actually like even the Woody, you know. For me and her, it was a big deal that I got like this part in a Woody Allen movie because I—that was like our thing. We, like, right
0: after Primal Fear. Yeah, you yeah, got everybody yeah, says yeah, I love you. Yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly.
1: And um, this period of like getting in a Woody Allen movie and getting to a movie with Milos Forman and everything—the simple fact that these things were happening was like a huge deal, you know. Like uh, as much as even just Primal Fear, and 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 fortunately she was she was. It, some of that overlapped with when she got ill, but she but she was too fully fully tuned into it all. She the, was. She yeah, got the, to see you have. By success. the time the movies came out, um, uh, she was she was pretty sick. Um, so so it was it was kind of one of those things where she didn't really see the movies, um, but 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 some of the I think what I would call especially now that I'm parent looking back I think. The deeper thing is like <laughs> you know, I think for a parent the deeper thing is like, are they are they happy? Are they gonna be okay? Yeah, yeah, is something exciting happened, has a dream has something been uncorked or fulfilled or whatever. You know, it's like it's it's not even like and of course it's like you all you know, there's levels to everything, like, oh it went great, or these things happen. But um but I, I think that I think the I think the most important the most important kind of things she knew.
0: Oh, what a time in your life. I would think that would be so uh, just discombobulating to to have your life change in such a dramatic way at the same time that you're losing a parent. Yeah, yeah, yeah
1: that, it, it, it it's like all things it's like we were talking about with Tourette's syndrome, the gift and the the gift and the affliction, you know what I mean? It's like all I I think that that the worst things the worst things going on when heady things are happening has within it like this this silver lining of of helping you keep perspective when a lot of noise that can be, you know, thrilling but also a little discombobulating or can kind of like get you wound up about things that ultimately really matter not at all. Right. Um, And to the degree that it blunts out the excessive highs of a thing. Right. You know, it, it... it's not what you would choose, but there's in retrospect you kind of go, well, there was there was a, uh, it was, it it, it it sure keeps your feet on the ground.
0: Cause your mom died what when she was fifty four? Yeah,
1: yeah. So so when you're going through that kind of a a drama, you you realize in the week like these things are not problems. Like these are not problems. I ain't getting stressed about this, or, you know bullshit. Um, but but you. But, but also, what one of the things that illuminated for me was like that actually work is a gift. like work, work is has a healing, kind of a bomb. Work kind of connects you back into actually a feeling of the presence of people in your life who have mattered, and you right. sort of like you hold on to the the relationship, the conversation with people you've lost, kind of more in the process of doing the work. And it's almost more that empty space where you're feeling the loss or discombobulated or where the, the, you know, the, which is not to say you don't need to sit within sadness or whatever, but it just, what it made me realize is like, you know, um, the best way when the best way to keep perspective when, when the stupidity that surrounds what we do is at a high volume is just work. Right. Because the truth is, uh, and I certainly felt this. Doing this um, film is like. Every, it doesn't even matter how long you do it. Like at the beginning of most of them, you feel like a fraud. You know what I mean? You're like, you're like, uh, someone's gonna take away my license. Like, you know, I, I often. Do you still feel that the first week? Yeah, like a lot. I'm, I'm always like, no matter how well prepared I am. Whether you're acting just, or directing. Yeah, and there's or... just something. There's just something that you, especially if in a way. Um, you you take time between things if if you think there's a value to not working constantly as an actor, right, right. which I happen to, then you can kind of go, wow, do I remember how to ride this bike? Like I I don't actually, right. I'm
0: not sure. No and, no uh, that is true. If you're if you're doing something every day, you don't have time to stop and think about right. it. But if you stop for and a while, and your muscles you're like, are in shape, right? Yeah right.
1: But but actually Francis, it's a good. I remember Francis said to me like, back I was like, hey, I might direct a thing. What's like what, What's your, like, one piece of advice? And he goes, walk onto set every morning and say, we're doing this. Never consider what you're going to do in front of people. <laughs> he's like, walk on the set and go, we're doing this. Get going. Everybody goes, this guy knows what he's doing. And they start setting up a shot. Then go over and figure out, like, what am I really doing at the top of the day here? And... Don't change. He goes, go. He goes, do that shot, do one take, and go, we're moving on. And then go to the thing you really want to do because people go, this guy's on fire. He's like, never, never let anyone on a movie set think you don't know what you're doing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's great advice. You know well, what I, mean? I, I mean, look, after, after making this film and getting to, getting to play with that level of artistic complexity. Yeah, yeah. I get that, for you, the challenge is, what can I do that I haven't done yet? And that's what I've always admired about you, is that you take on challenges, you you keep upping the stakes. I mean, even when I, when I met you in 2000, you were writing songs f- and lyrics for Death to Smoochie. And, you know. <laughs> that's, that's funny, I forgot that. But I really appreciate you coming on, because I do admire how you continue to find new ways to challenge yourself. And, and uh, for my own self-reflection, I want to surround myself with people who are still doing really relevant, challenging things as they move on through life, and they haven't settled. I think the definition of an artist is to never settle. And you're someone I've always admired, so thanks for coming and doing this. Thanks,
1: it's great. I love the, it's great to get to have a a full-throated, in-depth conversation, you know, it's like, it's very rare.
0: Well, thank you for doing it. Pleasure. Hey, folks, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ed. I've known him a long time, and I've always admired his work ethic, his desire to take risks, and his ability to find projects that reflect who we are as a culture. I've been such a big fan of his films over the years, from Moonrise Kingdom to 25th Hour to Primal Fear to American History X to Birdman and so many more. And I highly recommend you go out and see Motherless Brooklyn, and then you just do a deep dive into Edward's work. You know, just have an Edward Norton Film Festival weekend. It's an incredible acting class, and it's incredible to watch the progression of this kid who seemingly came out full-formed in primal fear and how he stretched his abilities and his talent throughout the years. Edward joins a list of over 210 other artists we've had on this show who have come on here and talked about their craft, their path to success, their vulnerability, their failures, and we have archived all those conversations, and I'm going to tell you how to find and watch and listen to all of those. First off, if you're listening to this podcast right now and you don't subscribe to the podcast, well, I suggest you do that because you'll never miss another episode. By subscribing, you'll ensure that a new off-camera comes into your feed every week. And while you're there, if you leave us a rating and a review, you'll help more people find the show. Now, as you know, off-camera is also a television show. And if you're just listening to this, I highly recommend you see what you've been listening to. You can do that every Monday and Wednesday night and throughout the week on Audience Network, which is on DirecTV and also on at and Now, if you don't have those services, you can also see us through our own website at offcamera.com. We have a really great television subscription package, and for only $4.99 a month, you can have access to all the episodes we've done to watch on any device as many times as you like. That is a treasure trove of archived conversations with iconic artists about their art. And by getting a subscription, you help support this show and you get access to some great wisdom from some great minds. So check all that out. Again, it's at offcamera.com. We also have some other cool things on the website. So take a minute and check that out. You can also find us on social media. We are offcamera.com at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. If you subscribe to my Instagram channel, you can also see behind the scenes photographs from the show. And that's pretty cool because with each guest, after we're done talking, we go into the photo studio and we do some portraits. Sometimes we do some crazy conceptual stuff. And sometimes we just make really simple portraits, but it's an extension of our conversation. And I enjoy sharing those pictures. So if you want to complete your off-camera experience, check out the Instagram feed, or you can also on our website, offcamera.com, get our weekly magazine which has those photos in it as well. There's just so many ways to digest off-camera. It's exhausting talking about it, but it's exciting to make it. Another great way you can use social media is by telling everyone that you like our show. We have a small team of dedicated people putting this show out each week, and the more people that find us ensures the more chance that we have of being able to bring the show to you each week. So take a minute and shout about us on social media and share off-camera with the world. That small dedicated team I was telling you about, I need to thank them now. Nathan Shields, our editor and sound man, Crawford Chippy, our producer and casting agent and all sorts of other things, Michaela Galvin, our graphic designer and one of our camera operators, Sasha Snow, our studio manager and prop manager and accountant, and Kara Johnson, our transcriptionist, and so much more. And there's a theme there, if you notice, everyone on this show does multiple things. And I'm pretty proud of that. I'm pretty proud that everyone we've hired has multiple skill sets, and they all contribute to this show. And I am pretty sure that most of you listening out there are also creatively diverse artists that probably have multiple skill sets. So we feel like you do. We love making you this show, and I'm really glad you're listening. That's it for this time. See you next time off camera.